Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. It's good to be back in my native California. I speak quickly. I hope, I hope that's okay. Uh, whenever I'm in the deep south, my wife's dad pastors a church in Memphis, Tennessee, and I've preached there a few times. And every time I do, I get myself in trouble because I talk too fast. At one point, a few years ago, I was preaching there, and I had a man in the back stand up and just start doing this to me. And I, I didn't know what was going on, so I, I just stopped my sermon and said, Sir, can, are you okay? And he said, you, slow down, because could, he couldn't understand me. And so I'm glad to be back amongst my own people here. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. We see that Isaiah was a young prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah in the 8th century B.C., and he, he gives this uh, message and gives this vision of God that I think oftentimes we... Especially as Americans, we get busy, right? We live very busy lives, hectic, fast-paced. And I wonder if sometimes we, we, we forget how big our God is that we serve. And we forget what He's really like. And so I want to look this morning at this vision that uh, God gave Isaiah of a holy and glorious God lifted up. And hopefully we can get a fresh vision of God today. Let me open with a word of prayer. Jesus, thank You so much for, for, um, for purchasing us, Lord, with Your blood. Thank You so much for adopting us in your family, for giving us the opportunity to be a part of a local church, the church that you died for, Lord, that you shed your blood for. Father, I pray that this local church of Bible Baptist, with its many ministries, Lord, in multiple languages and people groups, and their heart for missions around the world, Lord, thank you so much for being a gospel light for these many years here in this uh, area, Lord. I pray that you would continue allowing them. Father, as I hear the amazing report of money being pledged for a building fund because they need a larger facility, thank you, Jesus, for that growth. Thank you for Christians that are willing and wanting to forge ahead for the sake of the gospel, Lord. I pray that this morning, Lord, as I sometimes may not have the, the most eloquent words to say, Lord, but as we look at this vision that you gave Isaiah of you on your throne room high and lifted up, Lord, that we would get a fresh vision of how majestic and holy and glorious you really are. We things in Jesus' name. Amen. I look there beginning in verse uh, 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also, also the Lord sitting upon a throne. So we, we see this stop of this date in the year that King Uzziah died. And this is more than just a date on an ancient calendar. It's kind of a, 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 a designation of a special circumstance that happened in Isaiah's homeland at that time. Uzziah was one of the great kings of Judah, and he reigned for 52 years. 52 years. You can get that next picture up there. Can you imagine if this guy was still our president? That's what it would be like if we had Richard Nixon... He would have been our president for 52 years. That's incredible, right? To have one leader for that long in the nation of Judah. It was a time of prosperity. Uzziah had conquered the Philistines, the Amorites, the Edomites, and he improved the walls of Jericho. He developed agriculture. He did all these amazing things. He, he dug wells. He developed aqueducts. He, he really propelled the kingdom forward. He was a great king. It was also a time of uncertainty to the north. The kingdom of Assyria was gaining power, and they were threatening the northern kingdom of Israel. And in fact, it would just be a few short years where they would sweep down and place the children of Israel in bondage. It was also a time, though, unfortunately, of superficial worship. The Bible tells us that Uzziah did not destroy the high places. So there would be people who would pay lip service to in the temple that they worship God, but they would go home, and then they would also frequent these pagan places of idol worship. So there was a time when Uzziah did not, unfortunately, do all that he needed to do to keep the worship there for the people, uh, for the people of God perfect and, and true. 
And all this kind of converged in this perfect storm of this just little phrase that says, in the year that King Uzziah died. So this would be just a traumatic event in the life of many of the people for the children of, uh, of God and the, the, the people in the kingdom of Judah. So imagine this. Think of it like, for us, maybe 9-11. Those of you that were alive then, you could probably tell me maybe where you were on 9-11 and 2001 and you could say okay I remember where I was I, I was in my parents house there in uh, Riverside County and this was really before cell phones and pick up the phone my dad's a school administrator and one of the teachers said turn on the TV turn on the TV and then the rest of the day I remember we went to school but they had TVs on the school and it was I, I can remember exactly where I was that's why these people would look at this event they could probably remember when they, where they were when the news of Uzziah dying came to them. And they were probably fearful, thinking, okay, what's going to happen? We're a divided kingdom right now. We've got an, a, an aggressor to the north. What's going to happen? They're probably going to hear about our king dying, and they're going to come in and attack us. So the news would spread town to town. The king is dead. People are thinking, what is going to become of us? But Isaiah, look what he says, I saw also the Lord. His gaze was diverted from an empty throne to a heavenly throne. His focus, the focus of the people was on an earthly king, he, and he was seeing the king of kings. For all of earth's history, power has passed from, from nation to nation, from emperor to emperor, from dictator to dictator, from Alexander the Great to Genghis Khan, from Rome to England to the United States. Every earthly power eventually fails, right? And this, the, the power perhaps will pass to a new empire that, that rises. But we serve a God that is from everlasting to everlasting. The first, the last, the only eternal King. And that our God that we serve, His power, His reign will never cease. I think we often look at things, for, again, from, a, from an earthly, humanly view, and that's understandable, but though we live in a nation that one day perhaps may fall before Jesus returns, we serve, we are citizens of another country. And we serve a God that will never fail. And his kingdom will never end. He is the Alpha and Omega, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And like Isaiah, we Christians have to learn that military power, the pow almighty power of the American dollar, the, our political structure, diplomacy, these are not the fundamental forces that are, 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 are the welfare of our nation rests. And, and in times of prosperity, in times of uncertainty that we have today, right? Uncertainty with pandemics, with uh, uh, financial in instability. And oftentimes, unfortunately, even amongst Christians, superficial worship, right? Lack of dedication to the King of Kings. We need to find a fresh vision of our King, the King of Kings, high and lifted up, seated on His throne. So very quickly, with the time we have this morning, we're going to look at seven glimpses of God that we see in Isaiah's vision. Look at, verse two, look at the end of verse 1. I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain He covered His face, and with twain He covered His feet, and with twain He did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of And the post of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. So firstly, I see that God is... Uzziah, the king is dead, but God lives on. Look at Psalms 90, verse 2. I think I've got the verse on there. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. The God that we served didn't have an open, a, a, a birth date or an expiration date. He always was, he always was, he always was, he always is, and he always will be alive. God was the living God when he spoke this world into existence with his words. 
And he will be living 10 trillion ages from now when every man, woman, and child that's living right now on this earth has passed away. And in another 7,500 years, or probably less than that, 50 to 75 years, there will not be one single head of state in any nation in the earth that would be alive today. Every one of them will have died and passed on, but God will not. Amen. The turnover in world leadership is 100%, right? Oftentimes in our country, it lasts four years, maybe eight years, and then there's a new leader. For them, it was 52 years for their king. But for us, those of us that have accepted Christ, those of us that have been adopted into the family of God, if you're a believer, your king, your leader, will never pass away. He never had a beginning and therefore he depends on nothing for his existence. He always has been and always will be alive. He's alive. Then we see that God is above all. Look at that in verse 1. I see the Lord sitting upon a throne. You know, we never get a glimpse in the Bible of heaven just kind of coming apart at the seams, do we? Of God scrambling to fix things. Right? Think, think, think about that. Uh, think about Elijah in the Old Testament when he goes up against the prophets of Baal. What are they doing? They're going crazy. They're cutting themselves. They're screaming. They're trying to call out to Baal to call down fire from heaven. But when Elijah comes and prays that simple prayer and God sends fire, we don't see God out, right? He kind of, Elijah makes fun of them, right? Is your God on vacation? Is he sleeping? We don't have to worry about that. God that we serve is above all. And he sits on a throne. All is at peace. All is at rest because God is on the throne lifted up. We do not give God authority over our lives. He has it whether we like it or not. He is the Supreme Court, the legislature, and the executive branch all rolled into one. He is above all other thrones. So we see he's alive. We see he's above all. Then we see he's omnipotent. Omnipotent. Omnipotent means having unlimited power, able to do anything. The throne of his authority is not one among many, it is one of one. He is high and lifted up above every earthly throne. It, the fact that God's throne is higher than any other throne shows his power. No opposing authority can nullify the decrees of God. What God purposes to do, he accomplishes. And I think as believers, that should comfort us, right? To know that God is omnipotent, that we don't serve a God that is powerless. So many other religions in the world are grasping for the gods that they serve. My, I have a younger brother that's six years younger than me that's a, a missionary in Thailand. Less than half of 1% uh, of the Thai people are professing Christians. And everywhere he goes, almost every house outside of it, they have this little spirit house. And they will, you know, go out and pray and, and ask the spirits in that little spirit house to guard them, to bless them, to avoid curses. They'll even leave plates of food out there. I told them, man, you'd never go hungry. You could walk down the street and get full meals. He doesn't do that. But they are trusting in this little box outside of their house to protect them. As in, like, remember in Acts 17 when Paul is preaching on Mars Hill to the Stoics and philosophers and he tells them, can God be made in a house that's fashioned by man's hands? Can God be contained in that? No. If a God is truly God, he cannot be contained in a little house outside of your house. But we don't serve a God like that. Look in Isaiah 46, chapter 10, 46, chapter 46, verse 10. I believe it's on the screen. Declaring, oh, let's turn there if you'd like. Isaiah 46, verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. <laughs> wow. 
Wouldn't that be awesome if we could say that in our own lives? We could control everything like that? We'd like to, wouldn't we? We'd try to do that. But God says, my counsel will stand. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Look at Daniel 4.35. It's there on the screen. Daniel 4.35. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. That makes you feel good, doesn't it? <laughs> all of you? Yeah, you, you're nothing. And he, this is God, doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? Have, have any of you all asked God why? I'm going to put my hand up right now. Many times in my life, right? It's a natural human response when we have heartache and pain and struggles to say, God, what are you doing? I'm, I'm serving you, right? Don't we get this sense of entitlement? Like, I'm doing right, so now nothing bad should ever happen to me. But we live, we all know, we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world. And we have an enemy that is battling against us every single day. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, right? To be gripped by the omnipotence of God, the all-powerful God, is comforting for us, or it's terrifying for us if we are not in the faith. This morning, as we look at this glimpse of God, this incredibly powerful God that we serve, if you have never submitted yourself to that powerful God, accepted Christ, this point right here, it should scare you. It should. Because God's word stands forever. And what this book tells us stands forever. And if what God told us about eternity is going to stand forever, and you are on the opposite side, it's a scary place to be. Because the Bible tells us that if you don't accept Christ as your Savior, if you don't humble yourself and trust and have faith in Him, that one day you're going to stand before God to give an account for your life. And if you have not trusted in the saving work of Jesus Christ, you're going to spend an eternity separated from God in a place called hell. A place that was not originally designed for us. It was designed for the Satan and his angels. But that is where you will spend eternity. Now, that's terrifying. I don't wish that upon my worst enemy. But for those of us who are in the faith, and I encourage you if you're not, even today you can make that decision that this point should encourage us. The Bible tells us that God is, we are kept by His hand. That we have an omnipotent, all-powerful God that cares deeply enough about us to save us, cares, knows so much about us that He numbers the hairs on our head. I don't have many left, but He knows how few they are. And that's the God that in His omnipotent power spoke the world into existence. We see He's omnipotent. Then we see number four, we see God is magnificent. I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, verse 1, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Essentially, is like a robe. Have you had weddings at this church? Anyone get married in this church? So, we, so imagine here if we had a wedding today, and we've got the pastor up here maybe in the, in the groom, and he's you know, nervously moving his hands, and maybe the bride comes from outside or out this door, and maybe everybody stands up, and she comes and walks down this aisle. Oftentimes brides will have a long train, right? And sometimes it seems like it's a competition to see who can get the longest one. You've got to get two or three people to move it out of the way, right, for pictures. But sometimes they might even stand here at the top step, and if they have a beautiful uh, train on their dress, or maybe for pictures, they'll put it down the steps there to show how beautiful, because this is the, the, the best day in their life and a, a time that they are uh, 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 showing off, so to speak, in a, in a good way. So we get this idea here that 
God's train of his, maybe his robe is filling the temple. So imagine that bride, it just doesn't go down the steps, but it, go down, it goes down the middle aisle, and it goes down the other aisle, and it goes down the outside. And it's just kind of showing us a picture that God's robe filling that temple means he's a God of incomparable splendor. The fullness of God's splendor shows itself in so many thousands of ways. I think for those of you that live like I grew up in, in the city, and I've, we've been ministering in a large city, and in Santiago, it's very similar to Los Angeles and I mean, in so many ways, the climate and geography, but we're right at the foothills of the Andes Mountains, but it also is in a valley, and so we get a lot of smog. And so there'll be days when you wake up and it's so dusty and dirty outside, you can't see the mountains. But then after there's a, a, we get a good rain in Santiago, it's again, kind of like LA, it only happens three or four times a year. Everything, it'll, all the dust will come down and you'll look up and you see the Andes, just a line of incredible mountains covered in snow. It's amazing to see. We, we were able to go up, a, up in the mountains one time and visit and there's very little artificial light up there, and you look up and you see just millions and millions of stars. I wonder for those of us who have dwelt in cities for a long time, and we maybe don't get the time to get out into nature and to see God's incredible creative design, maybe one night or sometime if you're out traveling and you can look up in the stars and see those millions of stars that God has a name for every one of them, one of my favorite things, I love creation, I love animals. My kids and I, we watch some of those animal documentaries and shows. We love learning about animals. But one of the most incredible things that, that uh, I was thinking about, I, I apologize, I didn't have the video to show uh, this morning, but down at the bottom of the ocean, have you ever seen these videos of these fish that live at the bottom of the, the, of the ocean? I think they're the craziest looking things you've ever seen. I mean, they could be, if, you, if they were in a movie, and, and people would think there's some type of alien life form. They just look crazy. They got lights coming off their heads. Just incredible. And the thing that I was thinking about, I was struck by when the first time I saw that was that God created those fish at the bottom of the ocean. And for thousands of years, man didn't even know they existed. And it's just been in the last few decades that we could build a submarine to get down to those depths to film them that we even knew they existed. Isn't that incredible? That the God we serve created something that man, his top creation, wouldn't see for thousands of years. Why? Because he's God. Because of his creative design. They're so weird and beautiful, but God is lavish in his splendor. And his creative design, it spills out all around us. I want to encourage you and challenge you this week. Even if you can't get out of the city, but to look around and you look at the animals, the birds in the sky, the trees around us, and think of all the diversity that God has created for us to enjoy. And also for us to worship Him. To look up at the stars and marvel that the God we serve spoke and those stars came to be. We see that God is magnificent. Fifth, we see that God is revered. We see that God is revered. Look, He says, above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. So I think I've got a picture of these artist rendering, right? So we get the idea that we've got this heavenly creature with three sets of wings. And we see here that with two of them, he's not doing this picture, but he's covering his face. And two of them, he's covering his feet. And the other two, he's flying. And we don't know exactly uh, what everything about these creatures. But think about this. That even these creatures, majestic, angelic creatures that God designed that didn't necessarily, didn't have a sin nature like us, and yet even those creatures, when they were in the presence of God, they were covering their feet. 
they weren't worthy to be even in the presence of God. They're covering their face because of the splendor, God's glory radiating from his throne. When, according to verse 4, when one of those creatures speaks and worships God, the foundations of the temple shake. Could you imagine if you were in Isaiah in that position? <laughs> that would be incredible. I'm sure if you told the story and you wrote, it got written down in Scripture, a lot of people wouldn't believe you. So these angelic beings are magnificent, and the point is that they are revering their maker in great humility. Think about the times that an angel would visit a human being on earth. What would the human being do? Fall down, right? Be scared, be terrified because of this reflection of our God. So we see that God is revered. We see that God is revered. Then we see, number six, that God is holy. This creature calls to another one. He says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. As human beings, we have languages, right? And in this church, probably many languages. The fact that you have services in three languages. But I imagine there are probably others that speak even other languages in this church. But human language cannot fully articulate the attributes of God, right? We do our best. But that word holy in the English language is probably the be- about the best we can do. Because we see it throughout Scripture, right? We see it when there are those worshiping God in His throne room, and that's what they're saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy. I wonder, have we ever prayed to God and we begin thinking about His holiness how the Bible tells us to be holy for He is holy. And then I look, I'm introspective at my own life, and I look at how unholy I often behave and how unholy I think. And even as I have put off the old man and I'm walking in newness of life in my Christianity, as I'm, I'm trying to be sanctified, more sanctified every day if I can, and as we get closer to the return of Jesus or get closer to the day uh, we take our last breath and are fully sanctified and glorified. But man, when I think about how holy God is and how often I fall short, Man, it's, it should convict us, right? To understand that the holiest thing in the universe, a holy God, would choose to love us in spite of us. Would choose to use us in spite of us. Probably all of us, we don't, none of us want the, the darkest secrets of our heart or the thoughts in our mind to be given to others, right? We'd be embarrassed, wouldn't we? And yet the God who is omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, knows everything about you, knows how unholy your sinful heart is, and yet still chose to love you. He is incomparable. His holiness determines all that he is and does and is determined by no one. His holiness is what he is as God and no one else can ever truly be. Some call it his majesty, his divinity, his greatness, His value as the pearl of great price. In the end, our language runs out of ways that we can describe Him, but holy is about the best we can do. So we see that God is holy. Then, seventh, we see God is glorious. But before the silence and the shaking of the foundations that happens in this vision, we see that God is glorious. That creature, that seraphim says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The glory of God is the manifestation of His holiness. It's God's holiness on display. In Leviticus 10.3, God says, uh, the Bible says, Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them 
excuse me, that come nigh me, and before all the people, I will be glorified. Not I might be, I will be glorified. God's glory is on display. And someday, God is going to return, and He's going to destroy every competing glory on this earth. So many people, we look to the glory of the culture, right? And we idolize different things in our life. And maybe for us, we're not, we don't have a spirit house. We're not bowed down to pagan idols. But what do we do? We bow down to our job. We bow down to entertainment. We bow down to our finances. And we put everything else in front of God. But someday, God's going to take every competing glory and He is going to destroy it. And He's going to make His holiness known to every creature on this earth. But Christian, today, there's no need to wait. We can glorify God today. The Bible says in Jeremiah 29, verse 12, Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me. And I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. With all your heart. I wonder this morning, perhaps some of us who've been Christians a long time, I've been a Christian since I was a young child, so I was four years old. And there have been times when, man, I was not glorifying God. I had the Holy Spirit inside of me, but I was not following the Holy Spirit. I was not being led by the Spirit. I was, I was, uh, I was impeding the Spirit of God, right, by the way I was acting. I was deadening the Spirit. But we don't have to do that today. We can get a fresh glimpse of the glory of God that Isaiah found, and we can follow after God. So what happens, very briefly, to Isaiah? We see the effect of the vision on, the, the, uh, the effect of the vision on Isaiah. He says, woe is me. And wouldn't we say that? If we saw this picture that Isaiah said, as I'm doing my best to try to describe it this morning, but I'm not going to be able to paint as vivid a picture as Isaiah sitting in that throne room, seeing all this happen. He says, woe is me. Look at the Bible says in verse 5, then said I, this is Isaiah, woe is me, for I am undone. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's saying, listen, there's nothing good in me. I have unclean lips, the things I've said. And I live amongst the people, wicked people. But now I've seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 6, ask what happens to him. Then flew one of the seraphims unto him, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Hear my, send me. So when Isaiah saw himself in God's light, he saw his sinful state. There were the angels saying, holy, holy, holy. And we see it says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And the unclean lips reveal an unclean heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the Bible says the mouth speaketh, right? Whatever we have inside eventually is going to come out, isn't it? We can act like it doesn't, but in those trying times, those times of anger, what comes out of our mouth is often a reflection of what's in our heart. And that was with same with Isaiah. When we see God for who He is, that's the result of seeing God, right? Or should be, woe is me. I am in the presence of a holy God and I do not line up. We feel unworthy to ask for help because of our sins often, but look what happens to Isaiah. He not only said, woe is me, he saw God's love and grace. We see this seraphim, this angel coming. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it was just the radiant glory of God had these coals around the throne that were... A thousand degrees? I don't know what happened. But he gets this coal that's seemingly pretty hot. And he takes it. And he touches the lip of Isaiah. And he says, this has touched thy lips. And thy iniquity is taken away and thy sin purged. So, 
we see, he sees God. He realizes, like we should today, wow, woe is me. I am falling, the Bible says, I have fallen short of the glory of God, right? Every one of us. But when God saw Isaiah's really humility, it, this seraphim gets dispatched, this coal is placed on his tongue, essentially taking away the sin, saying the sin is taken away. And just as that live coal cleansed Isaiah's sin, so does what Jesus did on the cross today cleanse us and allow us access to God. Turn your Bibles real quickly to Ephesians chapter 2. We've got just a couple more minutes. Ephesians chapter 2. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, begin, we're going to be, begin reading in verse 13. Ephesians 2, 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh, not ours, his flesh, the enmity, our enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And came and preached peace to you which were far off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore there are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Just as God sent that seraphim to purge the sin from Isaiah, so too did he send Jesus, his own son, to die on the cross to purge our sins. Because like Isaiah, we are not worthy to stand before a holy God. And I wonder, we may not have a vision like Isaiah did, but do we believe that? Do we really truly believe that there is a holy God who created the universe, who spoke into existence, and who one day we will have to give an account to for our lives? And when we do, what will our answer be for our life? We see third, he finally heard the call for service, and he said, who will go for us? God has a purpose and a plan for this world. And I don't understand exactly why God allows people like me and like you to serve him, but he does. And the only people that God left, that God gave the Great Commission to, were sinners. Right? And God has elected to use as the instruments of his mission sinful humans like you and like me. And all we have to do, like Isaiah, is say, here am I. Send me. I'm willing to be used. If we would humble ourselves before holy God, oftentimes the call of God comes to us. Who will go for us? Who will share the gospel with their neighbor? Who will invite the people on the, in your job to church? Who will do it? If not you, then who? If not you, then who? Globally around the world, 8 out of 10 people never once meet a Christian. Never once. How will they hear about the gospel? We're so blessed to live in a country where we have the freedom to meet like this. We're not afraid of someone coming in and shutting down the service. We could go out today if we wanted to and stand on the street corner and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe people would laugh at us or make fun of us, but we don't have to worry about getting thrown in prison. So many around the world don't have that. But I wonder, will we be like Isaiah today? Will we see God high and lifted up? Will we be in awe of His glory? Will we see how worthy we are on our own merit 
will be willing to be used to fulfill God's plan. There's a lost and sin-cursed world all around us. You don't have to go to Honduras. You don't have to go to a different country. In your city, your neighbors, your coworkers, people you go to school with. I heard a stat recently that the average American Christian hears the gospel 12 times before they receive the Lord. What a blessing that we live in a place where people can hear the gospel 12 times. And oftentimes I share this a lot when I preach because I think all of us want to be the 12th person, right? How awesome is it when we're able to be a part of seeing someone come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? But that's not always the case. We might be number one on that list or number seven. It might be an invitation to church. It might be sharing with your, someone around you what Jesus has done in your life. Maybe you don't get to draw the net and see that person come to Christ, but down the road someone else is. You might be the one that plants. You might be the one that waters. But who gives the increase? God gives the increase. Well, we see our great God high and lifted up today. And with that fresh vision of who God really is, will it propel us to be bold witnesses for Him? Will it cause us to serve and sacrifice more for the cause of Christ? I want to encourage you this week, even this week, think about it. Ask the Holy Spirit to lead you. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you a fresh vision of who God is. Worship God for what He has done. Worship God for the creation around us. Worship God for what He has done in your life. Worship God for sending His Son to die for us, to redeem us. As unworthy as we are, He did that for us. And with that fresh vision, that knowledge of who God is, of what He's done for us, let it propel us to share the gospel with the lost around us. Let it propel us to love our brothers and sisters in this congregation more, to share the love of Christ with others even more. Let's pray.